Okay, now time for questions on chapter 29. We have one here. Genesis chapter 29. Yeah. Uh, can I ask two questions? No. Yes, there's an extra fee. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, so, with uh, Leah and her being hated, uh, so even though Jacob didn't have the natural affections that you would want in a marriage, he was still able to perform his what his responsibilities were in the home. Yes. So, that would be an example then of, you know, in whatever sphere of life where we have some responsibility, ultimately we want there to be joy in those things. But even if not, we can still, we still have a duty and we need to perform those types of things. Okay. When it says that Jacob hated Leah and loved Rachel, we want there to be love, but because he was in that position of duty, he performed his duty. He did what he was supposed to do. That's ideal to have uh, love and joy in what you do. But if you don't enjoy it, you still have a duty to do it. Now, specifically in marriage, then the answer is true or correct. The specific example of marriage we find in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 5. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, meaning sexual immoralities, fornications, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A husband, it says in verse 3, is to fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Here he's talking about marital intercourse, right? And that's because one another's body does not ultimately or solely belong to ourselves. It belongs to our spouse. And he says, stop depriving one another unless you agree and you devote yourselves to prayer. But otherwise, you must come together as husband and wife for the benefit of one another, okay? For the benefit of one another. And we might think, most men might think, there's no way that the husband would not want to have sexual intercourse. If at all, it's the wife who's usually that way. However, I have found through counseling, men who come to me and ask me about it, I've come across over the years two men whose wives want it more than they want it, and the wives feel like the husbands aren't doing their duty, they complain to the husband, and then the husband come, they, they come and they ask me about it. And I said, I'm going to read this verse to them, and I tell them, you're supposed to help her. You're supposed to do this. It's your duty to do so. So you must do so, because you are her husband. But usually it's the other way around. The wife doesn't want to do so for her husband. And in the same way, the wives, they need to submit. They need to fulfill their duties. And even if they don't like it, they must do it. Even if they don't want it, they must do it. It works both ways, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, 
In life generally, if I may use another example, this example is from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. 3.22. Colossians 3.22. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And also chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Well, a slave may not want to do what his master wants him to do. Correct? But when they do serve their masters, not externally as merely pleasing men, but they should do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, and do their work heartily for the Lord rather than for men. And verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Then when you are not appreciated or mistreated, let God handle that, according to verses 25 and 4 verse 1. Right? God will handle that. But whatever our sphere of duty, whatever our responsibility, we must carry them out. If this applies to slaves and it applies to husbands and wives, there's other scriptures that show that it applies in every, every area of life. Even the citizen toward his government. When the government enacts laws that are consistent with the laws of God, we ought to do it even if we don't like it. First, 1 Timothy 2, 1-7 for that. And Romans 13, 1-7. Okay, is that your first question? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I was just thinking about that in contrast to what you, you know, today in our culture, it's so often that if you don't feel like something or if you don't find, uh, if you don't love this person, then you have an excuse to divorce them and go find someone else. But yeah. that should never be the case. Yes, yes. We can't give up on things just because we don't like it or we don't love it. If it's our duty, then it's our duty. And we should learn to love it. Find a good aspect of it and look at it the way Paul said, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Whatever we do. But if you can improve your situation through lawful means, that's okay as well. Sure, sure. So, But if it's like marriage, you're married to the person, there's no... Uh, getting out of it, right? Yeah. So you, need to, you need to be faithful to them and do what you're called to do. Yes. Now, you asked if you can improve your situation. You, you may do it and if, that, if that's okay. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, he describes in 7.17 to 24, slavery, again, and circumcision. And then he says in verse 21, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. So there is improving the situation from being a slave man to a free man. 
we can improve our situation. Okay? All right. Was there a follow-up comment? No, no. When he said that, I want to know what that meant. Yeah, you got it. Okay. All right. Your second okay, question. My second question was the uh, passage we read in 29. Um, it talks about Leah being, her eyes being Leah and Rachel being beautiful. So there was an objective standard by which one was determined to be ugly and the other one was determined to be beautiful. Uh, but today, there's parts of our, again, culture, in terms of art, in terms of the way we look at reality, that are trying to undermine any standards of beauty or, does that make sense? Uh, can you talk about those things? What, what, why is that happening? What's going on behind that? Yes, in our culture, why are the distinctions between what is beautiful and uh, ugly, why are those distinctions, or what is acceptable art and what's unacceptable, why are those distinctions being blurred? Um, they're being blurred in order to bring chaos and misery in our culture so that there will not be any kind of sophisticated, cultured, uh, appropriate, decent art and living. That's why it's happening. It's actually got uh, pernicious moral uh, um, foundation or attack on the proper virtuous society that has law and order, it has culture, it has decency. People who are against decency with Christian standards, people who are against it seek to undermine it and blur the distinctions and say, well, if I think it's fine, it's fine. So if I think uh, vulgarity and profanity are fine in my music, then who are you to judge me? When actually it brings down the people who sing and the people who listen to that music. It brings everybody down and creates misery and perverseness and chaos in society. Yep. So we should oppose it. We should have standards of, of beauty as, as far as the Bible shows us. Okay? Next question. What, when the first time he tells him, do this for seven years and I'll give you the wife, when he does the treacherous act and doesn't give it to him, why doesn't he show more skepticism when he tells him, well, if you do it now, then I'll give you the other one? He says, if you do it now, then I'll give you Rachel after the six days, after the seven days. But he had just got stabbed in the back on the first agreement they made. So why doesn't he show any skepticism like? Why is Jacob not showing skepticism since he was stabbed in the back? Just then. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why, except that he really wanted to marry Rachel. He really wanted her, so it was, I guess in his mind, worth the risk. And it was waiting another seven days to find out. Now, if Laban had said, wait another seven years before she is your wife, then he may have had more skepticism. But because he agreed to give her Rachel within another seven days, from the first day to the eighth day, I guess he was willing to take that chance for those seven days. Because he really years, wanted to marry. And seven years were like a few days. <laughs> seven days were like a few hours. So. Yeah. Yeah. So All right. Yes, in the back. So, um, in Leviticus 18 and 18, in your discussion on different uh, relationships and, and sexual morality, um, God says to the Israelites, You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. So it seems like there's 
it's not like just a ceremonial thing, like a dietary restriction. This is a moral um, law, moral aspect to it that you should not marry um, a, a woman and her sister. So is 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 what Jacob is doing here? I mean, obviously he's been duped, he's been deceived, but is there sin then because he's marrying a woman and her sister? Is there a sin because Leviticus eighteen eighteen says? You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Well, in the case of Jacob, we know, like you said, he was deceived. But he could have said no after he married Leah. He could have said no to Rachel. So in that way, he would have sinned if Leviticus 18.18 applies to him. However, it may not apply because Leviticus 18.18 18 was written by Moses, and Moses lived 1,500 years uh, before Christ, and Jacob was about 1,800 years before Christ. There's a separation of about 300 years. So that's one issue. Uh, was this law in force at that time? Now, it is part of the moral law, but with this specificity, was it applicable to the moral law at that time? previous to Moses? That's the question, and that's the uncertainty. But if we go farther back than Jacob and go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and then if we go even as far back as Noah and his sons, it would not have been as extreme as Adam and Eve or as close as Adam and Eve. Still, Noah, his sons and their wives, uh, their children would have had to intermarry. But in the case of Adam and Eve... The first family, they would have had, they had sons and daughters, because the text says so in Genesis 5, 1 to 5. They had sons and daughters, other sons and daughters, aside from Cain, Abel, and Seth. They had others, and they would have had to intermarry. Therefore, um, so the issue of nearness of blood relations um, is also an issue with Adam and Eve and Noah. Okay, but also Leviticus 18.18 is talking about the two sisters. And so it's not just relations, who you marry, but it's also two at the same time. Is that your question too? Well, it could be wrapped wrapped into it. It's just like, because I think, I mean, you would agree that we would say that the God's moral law written on the heart of man, God is true from Adam until... Uh, the end of the world, always true because it's based on God's character, right? So if it's, you know, then the two wives could also be on the question is that if it's, if it's unlawful to do this, then Moses would not be then also unlawful. You know, the Ten Commandments have been true from, from the beginning just because Moses wrote it down you know, 300 years later doesn't mean it's not true. So that, that's, that's kind of the question. Is. Yes, okay. Now the, th- the, the third point uh, I make has to do with marrying more than one woman at the same time. Um, This we see happen with Abraham and with Jacob and others. Um, It happens about a dozen or two times in the Bible. It doesn't happen all the time. People think it happens all the time. And also they, they think it happened in every period of time when there's no evidence that it happened in every single period of time throughout all of the Old Testament. 
It does happen, like I said, at least a dozen times. And so then the question is, why are these marriages not condemned? Why are they not condemned? And I would say that God had to have made exceptions with them because if they were sinful marriages in all of these cases, and in at least a dozen cases, we have righteous men doing it. Why are they righteous if they are consistently practicing sin? How can those two go together? And I always go back to Romans 4, 4, 17 onwards to prove this in relation to Abraham. If Abraham, as he is typically portrayed, that he blundered and fumbled in a lot of the incidents we have in Genesis, if he really blundered and stumbled in these incidents, for example, he didn't leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go straight to Canaan. He paused in Haran, therefore he sinned. When he came to Canaan, he owned slaves, it says, Genesis 12, therefore he sinned. When there was a famine in the land, he went to Egypt, therefore he sinned. When he said, she is my sister, to Pharaoh in Genesis 12, he sinned. In Genesis uh, 14, he conducted a war, a war of recovery, because he was, uh, his people were invaded and he wasn't there. We don't know why he wasn't there, but once he discovered it, he collected his own trained men and his allies, and went to recover what he lost. So it's not good to be uh, um, a warrior, right? Some Christians think, professing Christians think, it's a sin to be in government, and it's a sin to be a warrior or a soldier. Um, that's why some of these denominations don't enroll in, enlist in the military. So there, and then in Genesis 15, he is worried, anxious, that he doesn't have a son when God promised him seed. Um, in Genesis 16, he marries Hagar, which he sinned in marrying Hagar. I'm, I'm talking about the typical interpretation of Abraham. In Genesis 17, he laughed when God told him that his wife Sarah was going to bear a son. In uh, Genesis... Let's see, in Genesis... In Genesis 20, when there was another famine, he migrates to the Philistines, and Abimelech, king of the Philistines, was told by Abraham and Sarah that they were brothers and sisters. In Genesis 21, when there is persecution and a dispute between Ishmael and Isaac, um, Hagar and Sarah, in Genesis 21, Abraham divorces Hagar and sends Hagar and Ishmael away. Okay? These are all of the typical incidents in the life of Abraham used to impugn his character and say he had a shaky faith. He stumbled many times in these very significant ways. Right? You, you may have heard of those things. The way that he is explained and preached. Well, look at... Gen, uh, Romans, Romans 4, Romans 4, and let's start at 18, 4, 18. In hope against hope, he believed. 
in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There are so many words and phrases here where Paul emphasizes the unshakable faith of Abraham, right? And this is a summary of his life, which we read in Genesis 11 to 25. If, if the typical interpretation of Abraham is true, then Romans 4, 18 to 22 cannot be true. Because if the typical interpretation of Abraham is true, there would be many heinous and egregious sins Abraham committed, and this passage in Romans could not be true of him. So one or the other has to be true. And if we believe in the, in the infallibility, reliability of the apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament, then the Apostle Paul is correct, and our interpretations of Abraham are false. Okay? So that's how I would answer what happened to Jacob and in marrying Leah and Rachel. And next time we'll see he also married Zilpah and Bilhah. Yeah. And, by the way, speaking of the way it is perceived, received in the Old Testament, Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. This would be about 800 years later, seven or 800 years later, after the time of Jacob, in the time of Boaz and Ruth, and right before David, or about the time of David. It says in 4.11, the townsmen of Bethlehem, the townsmen of Bethlehem of Judah, when Boaz and Ruth marry, this is what they say, 4.11, and all the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethel. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this young woman. Why are they mentioning these individuals? And why are they so happy about it? Because like I said about Leah from... Genesis 29.35, I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. And she named him Judah, right? Why? Because they, at that time, Leah and others, and these here in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, about 1100 B.C., they also know that there are messianic expectations through all of these patriarchs and their tribes and families. And they present Rachel and Leah positively here. Both of them positively. 
and even Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That though there may have been sin, and there was sin in the case of verse 12, maybe also in verse 11, but I'm, I'm arguing that in verse 11, probably not, but certainly so in verse 12. Because Judah went to a woman he thought was a prostitute when she was actually his daughter-in-law. And Perez was conceived from that. Okay, next question. I have a question. Uh, Rachel, uh, she was a godly woman. Uh, but then came to my mind when she stole Nabon's idol. And I was reading uh, Calvin and Gil, and Gil says that they have different opinions. Uh, uh, Calvin says that uh, he asked why she didn't uh, cast him away after they crossed the river. And Gil says uh, maybe he, uh, she stole them to prevent Laban from consulting them and pursue Jacob. So what, what are your thoughts? Yes, actually it's in 31. 31-34. After 20 years, Jacob and his family, they flee and they return to Canaan. Um, on, that, on that pursuit, 31-34 says, um, Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them, and Laban felt through all the tent, but did not find them. Um, and she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Okay, well, that's one plausible interpretation that she's taking them away so that they can't be worshipped. Yeah. But another one might be that they are translated household idols and... The translators take pains to give us the Hebrew in the footnote. The word is the, the word for teraphim. Now, it may be that they are statues that are worshipped, but perhaps also they were just statues. Valuable or something like that, statues. So it may not have been necessarily worshipped. But it doesn't tell us. It doesn't say why she stole them. Is there an example of the Bible using the word idols just to mean plain statues and not something that's worshipped? Is there an example of this? Well, one close for this same word would be in 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19, yes. When Michal, the daughter of Saul, the wife of David, it says in 13, 19, 13, and Michal took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. 
Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. So Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? Do you see that? Okay. Um, that, that could be a statue big enough to look like a man. Um, not necessarily to worship. Certainly David wouldn't have worshipped it. Mm-hmm. We don't know if Michal did worship it or not. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't small like Rachel took. This one would have been big, big enough to look like a man in the bed. It wasn't Rachel making a big deal out of the possessions that were belonging to her anyway. Her husband wanted to just leave and get away, but she's like, these things are owed me. So it makes it make sense that it wouldn't necessarily be a worshipful thing, but something of value. Something of value because she wanted to take her own belongings Correct. and go and establish herself. Because they do say um, that our father has sold us to you, so he doesn't want anything to do with us anymore anyways. So we are with you, Jacob. All right, any more? Yeah, I have another question. Um, the arrangements as far as uh, you know, home like this with Jacob having the two, the two wives, and he obviously would spend time with both of them. How would that living arrangement be? Well, I know that they had separate tents. So would, the hus- would they sleep in their own separate tents? Would they, how does all that work together? <laughs> Um, you it's, some plans on the yeah, right. <laughs> Just curiosity. Just wondering how, just, you, know, how just he, you know, if he loves Rachel, is that who he spends the night with? Does he spend the night with him? Yeah. Is that how she knows Tom? Yeah. Because he never comes. Yeah. Only way she knows that he's she's yeah. not loved is that he never comes. Yeah. Never comes yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point as well. Rachel sells the man breaks later. Leah says, you know, I bought you. So it, like, it seems like there's a definite separation. Yeah, in chapter 24, Genesis 24, 24, 67. This is a verse that shows that they did have separate tents. It says, 24, 67. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after the, the death of his mother. There it says Sarah's tent. So it's likely, and there is evidence outside the Bible that the women had separate tents in which they lived. And therefore it would have to be the husband who goes from um, his tent to her tent, whichever tent. And since we do know in chapter 30, chapter 30, 14, and following that Leah and Rachel were separate. Look at 30 verse 14. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, Therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. 
which would mean they were in separate tents. He may lie with you. Uh, 16. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And, she, and God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. So the husband would have a tent, the wives would have, and then as they had children, the children would be with the wives, the mothers, and theirs, and her children with hers there. But yeah. then there would be interaction during the day yeah. between the various yes. members of the household, the servants, and all of that. Yes. Anymore. If not on this, any other subjects? We have extra time today. 30 minutes extra. Since we're on the subject of um, marriage and wives and such, um, Judah and Tamar. He thought he was getting a prostitute, and it turned out he made her pregnant, and it was his daughter-in-law. Well, she's also considered his wife, right? No. Not even though... Because they did not marry and make vows. Because it says in Genesis 38, 26, And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. So Perez was an illegitimate son. Okay. Yeah. But was, was um, sexual intercourse with a woman considered um, a, a marriage bond? Was sexual intercourse considered a marriage bond? No. Um, until the vows are in place, before God, then it's not considered a marriage covenant in the sight of God. Just because there is sexual intercourse does not mean one is married. Yeah. So Jesus says that to the Samaritan woman in uh, John 4. Yes, that, that's an example. Remember the Samaritan woman in John 4? Um, he, he said to her, go call your husband. And she answered, Sir, I do not have a husband. And he said, You have answered correctly. You do not have a husband. For you have had five husbands. And the man with whom you are now is not your husband. This you have said truly. John four sixteen to 18. And even the passage we read in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5. It says... But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Right. When the immorality occurs, the fornication occurs, it doesn't mean one is husband and wife. Okay. That's a, it's a modern way of sneaking out of actual marriage. There are people yeah. who claim Christ who live that way and say we're married before the Lord as an escape. Yeah. Yeah, the, a modern way to escape... And to practice their sin is to say, because we have had intercourse, we are married before the Lord. Therefore, uh, don't, don't mention it, don't press it, don't call it sin. Even though we haven't done it the right way, biblically, and made a vow. 
Yeah, just leave us alone. And even the law, in some places, the law, after a while, six months, a year, five years, or whatever, considers the couple married before the law. Now, the law does that because there are legal and financial economic implications. So the law does it for those reasons to avoid conflict and controversy among family members and society. So they have their reason for doing it. But we're talking about in the sight of God. Does God consider it a marriage in the proper sense? The answer is no. They are living in sin until they marry. They make their vows before God and determine to stay together till death. Till death do they part. They have to vow that. Then it is marriage. Yes? I've been reading in Ezekiel lately, and I was in chapter 20, and he repeats four times a phrase that we've all heard, but he just repeats it so often, and I wondered if it showed up around this time. For the sake of my name, it's repeated four different times. So he's talking about judgments, they're doing these wicked things, and then like in uh, 20 verse 9, for the sake of my name, again repeated in, in uh, 14, also 22, and down in uh, 44. And you see it also in Daniel, when Daniel intercedes on behalf of the nation. You see it briefly mentioned about the blasphemies in Isaiah as well. Is this something that was common to God protecting his name throughout the Old Testament or during the prophetic period when Israel was in particular uh, living in evil for such a long period of time that this became a more common phrase? The question is, in Exodus 20, a few times, God is concerned for the sake of his name. For example, 20... Ezekiel 20, verse 9, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And the question is, is this particular to the era of the prophets from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel in that era? Or was this something that was known prior to this? The answer is, it is prior to this. It's prior to this. A couple of examples from Exodus. Actually, three examples. Um, The first one is Exodus 20. Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. After saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verse 3. Then he says in verses 4 to 6, not to make an idol. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. His name is mentioned there, the name of the Lord in vain. And typically the common interpretation is to say, if we use vulgarity and profanity, then we are taking God's name in vain. And that is true, but that's not the only way that this could be breached. Right. This, it's not the only way to break or take God's name in vain here. Exodus 32. Exodus 32. And verse 11. Remember they made the golden calf. They worshipped. They held a festival. They danced and all that and played. 32.11. Moses. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with Great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them? 
in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn away from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Um, there, what God does to Israel in relation to Egypt has to do with what the Egyptians might say about God. 32.12, why should the Egyptians speak saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? God had evil intent toward Israel and he would be slandered by the Egyptians. And remember in Ezekiel 20, verse 9, he did mention, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. The way that God treats Israel in Egypt and out of Egypt and after Egypt are all related to his name. And he doesn't want the Egyptians to slander the name of God or the intent of God like that. And then one more. Yeah, well, three, three out of the four references in Ezekiel 20 all reference Egypt, Egypt. and other nations. Yes. Yeah, okay. One more in Exodus. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 5. 34, 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. It says that he's calling upon the name of the Lord in verse 5. And then God proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord God, and describes attributes associated with his name. The two main attributes, he's loving and he's righteous. And when Moses was reminded of it, he worshiped quickly. He made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Yes. Um, so First Corinthians five eight. First Corinthians five eight. Um, and for the third, I think a quick clarifying question. Would you agree with the the typical threefold distinction of the law between moral, civil, and ceremonial? Yes. Okay. Um, so anyway, so First Corinthians five eight. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Or maybe seven first. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, when he says celebrate the feast, I mean, we're not supposed to be celebrating the Passover feast of Exodus, right? So, right. what is, you know, in what sense? Is he talking about it? Is it? How, how do we interpret that? How do we go through that? How do we understand celebrating the feast of the Passover since in the ritual law, the ritual law 
has been abrogated with the coming of Christ, Hebrews chapters 5 to 10. Hebrews 5 to 10 clearly makes that point. So if we're celebrating the feast, we are celebrating it in terms of its meaning or fulfillment, its implications. Its meaning, its fulfillment, its implications. That's how we are celebrating it. The feast, when they cleaned out the old leaven from their households, that was to signify the removal of all sin in order for them to experience the presence of the Lord. Removal of sin from their household, meaning in their life, to experience the presence of the Lord. So if we're about to, we're always about cleaning out the old leaven, that means getting rid of the old man, the old nature, then we have to make room for the new nature controlled by the Holy Spirit in our life. And that's how we celebrate. And this is all found in Christ. He came for this purpose. He came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. That's what celebrating it means. Now, in this specific context, the application of it, the implication of it, was that they had a wicked man in their congregation, unrepentant wicked man, in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind, as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Okay. So that was there. He was unrepentant. And the Corinthians weren't doing anything about it, proudly. So he confronts them and says, if you let this remain here, this man remain here, then he's going to infect the rest of the body. His beliefs, his behavior will impact the rest of the body. And we're supposed to be doing the opposite. We're supposed to realize a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And therefore, if he's unrepentant, then he needs to be removed from the local church, which he says in verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So then, the reason why I'm asking is I'm thinking about it like in general terms of like the army and how to look at the old covenant and things like that. So would it be wrong to look at, for example, like the Day of Atonement and use that as like a, a blueprint for how we do like our worship service on Sunday, for example, like when we take the Lord's Supper, when, when we sing, when we read the Word, like looking at those different things. Because I've heard some people kind of use that kind of, um, using the Old Covenant and the way they did things as like a pattern for how they do things on, on the Lord's Day. Okay, you're asking these questions in relationship to theonomy. That is God's law and the applicability of Old Testament laws to the Christian. And you mentioned Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Yeah. What's that example? I haven't heard that example used. Yeah, unfortunately I can't remember what exactly they said, but I know they said, but I don't remember what it was, but I know there's something in, in the way that the temple or the tabernacle was. You know. Okay, now, in whatever ways the apostles interpret the ritual laws, the ways they interpret, and they don't interpret every single ritual law, but they do interpret enough ritual laws that we can see a pattern in the way that they use them in principle, just as 1 Corinthians 5. Now, if they are doing it to that extent, then we should do it to that extent. 
and don't go beyond it. Or don't even minimize it. Some others minimize it and don't even do what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5. The key is to control our interpretation by the apostolic interpretation of the New Testament interpretation of the Old. Use that. Always ask. Whenever somebody's purporting something, say, where is that found in the Bible? Where is that found? Can you show me a scripture that proves your point? Don't point me to a thousand-page book that proves the point. I want to, to get to a scripture that will give me, in a nutshell, the point that you're making. Prove it from this scripture, uh, an indisputable, clear interpretation of scripture. Give me one of those before you make me believe what you're, you're telling me. That's a, a first principle we have to have, a first approach we must have whenever anybody says anything. Anybody says anything, ask. Even when you ask yourself or when you read yourself, what does the Bible say and where can I find this in the Bible? Am I understanding this particular verse correctly? Let me see from another scripture if it interprets this one. Okay? So that's what we should always do. Always ask, where is it in the Bible? Also ask, Who's saying it? Who's saying it? If somebody purports something, somebody writes, somebody preaches, ask who is saying it. And I don't mean who is saying it in terms of is he, is he famous? Is he obscure? Does he have a thousand people in his church? Or does he have ten people in his church? I'm not asking in those ways necessarily. However, if he is famous and he has a thousand people, you have to ask, how is he so famous and, and has a thousand people if he's teaching the Bible faithfully? You have to ask, how does that come about? Because typically, those large crowds assemble where the gospel is diluted. Then ask, who's saying it in terms of, um, why is he saying it? Who is this man saying it? Who is this man writing this book or preaching it? Where is he going? What's his worldview? Where is he going with all this? Is he trying to get us in, in this way, in this direction or in that direction? And is that goal as to why he's saying it, is that goal a biblical goal? Does it match up with the scripture? If you find that he thinks that we can and should transform society so that we have a mostly Christian country or world because they believe it for the whole world mostly Christian world or fully Christian world then Jesus returns and the means is what I'm telling you in my book then that's ridiculous there's absolutely no way one can prove from scripture that the post-millennial view that thinks that the world is going to become nearly Christian or completely Christian preceding the return of Christ. In fact, Christ's return is hinged upon the Christianization of the world. They actually believe this. So when they have that as their goal and theonomy is the means to reach that goal, you know that it's suspect. Because the world is not. Because it says evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second, uh, Second uh, Timothy three thirteen. Can I add a little point to that? 
many of the people who listen to this are, like you said, reading these thousand page books and don't shy away from going directly to Galatians or Colossians 2.16, I'm thinking particularly, where these things are almost addressed verbatim against some of the things these guys are saying. Don't think they, they have an answer for them. A lot of times I find them completely undone. It's so clearly written, sometimes in Scripture, because they embrace even beyond it's written, and they're not using the Scripture as their source. They're using so much writing as that source. Yes. So. Yes, okay. So if you go to a clear passage like Galatians 2.16, you can find that they aren't re referencing the Scriptures very much or carefully explaining them. And in fact, almost any heresy you encounter, there are at least three books of the New Testament that will address them. If you wanted to consult five, if you wanted to be an expert in five books of the New Testament, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, 2 Peter, and Jude. If, if you were an expert in these five, almost every heresy you encounter is addressed by these five books. It, that is legalism, misunderstanding the purpose of the law. Hebrews and Romans and Galatians will explain all that. The one solitary, unique gospel of Christ Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews will explain. The nature and approach of false teachers, Second Peter and Jude, explains that. If you understand all those books, it will help you a long way in understanding what you encounter. And if you insist that these people go to those books and prove their points, they won't do it. They will not do it. They will walk away from you. They'll stop talking to you. They'll stop... Um, posting with you on the internet, they will stop because they know they have no clear, logical answers in those places. Okay. And it's like a brought up cautions too that says no one is to be, you know, in authority or whatever with regards to a, a festival. I mean, he says, those explicit, he says that explicitly right there. Yes. Yeah, even Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Because Colossians is attacking the wisdom of the world and false knowledge. Colossians is attacking the wisdom, false wisdom of the world. Any more? All right, if not, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being with us and for this, your word. We pray that we will understand carefully and obey. May we not be just hearers, but doers of the word. May we desire, Lord, to please you, to be faithful men, just like there were many in the past, patriarchs that followed you faithfully, who were unwavering in their faith. We pray that we will be the same. We will endure until the end and be saved. Teach us, Lord, not only for ourselves, but be with our families and our churches and wherever we go day by day to be faithful like this, to spread the gospel, to share the, the true word of God, that they might be saved and sanctified. Build up your church, build up your elect from around the world. In Christ, amen.